0: Amen. I think our younger children can be dismissed to Children's Church at this time. The rest of you want to get out your uh, message outline that says "deaf to Christ on it. And they're off. While the kids are going out, uh, it's, it's good to have Tom and Jane Wills with us this morning. And uh, they are uh, World Harvest missionaries to Spain and uh, from this area. And please, uh, after church, take a moment to welcome them with us. We're glad you're here. If you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. We'll be starting at verse 39 this morning. John chapter 8, verses 39 through 47. This is not an easy passage. You need to listen carefully. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did, they said to him. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, "'If God were your Father, you would love me, "'for I came from God and I am here. "'I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. "'Why do you not understand what I say? "'It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. "'You are of your Father, the devil, "'and your will is to do your Father's desires.'" Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're confronted this morning with the bold and direct words of Jesus. We pray now that you would open our hearts and our minds, our ears, that we might hear and understand. And we ask that you would do this for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Is it warm in here or is it me? I'm going to lose this. Okay, it's always me, but it's also warm. Let me ask you the question, would you trade your soul for a DVD? I'll be preaching over in that direction this morning. uh, Because well over 100 people and counting may have done just that. Or at least they think so. There is a group that calls itself the Rational Response Squad. And it's inviting people, primarily teens, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and thereby commit the, quote, unpardonable sin. And if you are among the first 1,001 people to declare, I deny the Holy Spirit and post your denial on YouTube, you too will receive the free DVD The God who wasn't there. Now, on one hand, whatever evil these folks think they're committing in their brash videos, they're not really blaspheming the Holy Spirit. To do that requires an admission of supernaturalism, which is definitely out of bounds for free thinking rationalists like the Rational Response Squad. See, according to Scripture, the unpardonable sin is to experience the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit and to attribute it to another supernatural agent, Satan. But if you think about it, on the other hand, this is a very clever ploy by this group, the Rational Response Squad. They think that once someone has, in a sense, jumped off this cliff of denying the Holy Spirit, that they can't change their mind as they plunge down the abyss. And if you're convinced that regardless of later convictions in life, that you are beyond forgiveness, then your only choice is the full-court press of godless rationalism. Disturbingly, the Rational Response Squad reports that the Blasphemy Challenge, that's what they're calling this, is targeting 25 websites geared to teens, including Zanga, Friendster, Boy Scout Trail, Tiger Beat, Teen Magazine, YM, which I think used to be Young Miss, but that wasn't cool, Cosmo Girl, and Seventeen. And their aim, very clearly stated, is to deprogram kids who've been indoctrinated from birth to believe in God in general and Christianity in particular. In other words, they are targeting our children in an attempt to influence the culture as a whole away from faith. am I making this up. It's a real group. They're doing this. Their underlying premise is that the words truth and Christian are not only wholly unrelated, but that what we call truth is actually a lie. And if they're right, we're wrong. And if we're right, then they're wrong. But in this debate, somebody is wrong. And that brings us to our text this morning. For in this passage, we find Jesus confronting another earlier version of the rational response squad. They have challenged Jesus, as we saw last week, on the subject of truth. Namely, they think that he doesn't have the truth, and they do. So Jesus continues his response to them in a very bold, direct in confrontational manner. Nothing else we see here that Jesus doesn't mince words. And we start with the message, you must belong before you love. Must belong before you love. Verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did, they said to him. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. Came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Now if you remember last week, and uh, I'm glad to see so many folks here. Usually the Sunday after Easter is like one of the lowest attendance Sundays of the year. So kudos, you're here. But if you remember last week, I said, as we read uh, these verses, how the Jews claim Abraham as their father, and what they were saying was, we're already members of God's chosen people, God's family, through Abraham. We don't need what you're offering. Back in verse 33, they said, we're offspring of Abraham, and they're trying to tell Jesus they already have what he offers. They're children of Abraham, that's all they need. But Jesus is saying, because sin now ruled in their hearts, they were not children of God or children of Abraham, but children of Satan himself. And Christ is letting everyone know that regardless of what father you claim, you prove who your real father is by your actions. And Christ shows us by his words who his father is, because he says that he speaks about what he's seen when he's been with his father. And Christ shows us by his deeds who his Father is because he acts like his Father. He said back in John uh, chapter 5, just a mere few weeks ago um, when we were there, but he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now you know where that phrase, like Father, like Son, came from. But at this point in time, our Lord's getting pretty aggressive. Back in verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world, implying his hearers were in darkness and therefore lost. In verse 23, he asserted, You are from below, I am from above, implying that his listeners were from below. They were in danger of the fires of hell. In verse 34, he said, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And then we came to his words in verses 37 and 38 as we worked our way through this chapter. By now the gloves are off. There he said, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And Jesus indicts his listeners for depending on two things for their spiritual health. One is their physical ancestry as offspring of Abraham. And the other is their spiritual heritage. They assume because of their heritage that they're children of God. And Jesus hit a nerve there. And so they respond just as he knew he would in verse 39. Abraham is our father, they answered. Four words, that's enough of an answer for them. As far as they're concerned, case closed, argument over. Abraham is our father. The common belief at that time was Abraham was so godly it had stored up such a vast treasury of merit that his descendants would draw upon it and would attain righteousness. It doesn't come from the scriptures but comes from some of the extra-biblical Jewish writings. But Jesus is challenging these people. He says here, verse 39, if you were Abraham's children you would be doing what Abraham did. He's letting them know that their conduct And their evil attitudes reveal who their real father is. And it ain't Abraham. When Abraham heard the truth, think about the stories of Abraham from back in the middle of Genesis. When he heard the truth, although he lived in this idolatrous pagan culture, he responded with obedience. That's his distinguishing mark. He heard the truth, he took it to himself, and he was obedient to it but the jews who are confronting jesus aren't doing any such thing they're trying to kill the bearer of truth they're not spiritual descendants of abraham but they continue to protest look at verse 41 you're doing what your father did they said to him we were not born of sexual immorality we have one father even god obviously infuriated by jesus continued insistence that they're not abraham's spiritual children They essentially lash out at him with a vicious insult. Their mocking statement, we were not born of sexual immorality, is a disparaging reference to the controversy surrounding Jesus' birth. In other words, they're implying that his birth, unlike theirs, was illegitimate. And what they're really saying is, we're not concerned about our pedigree. We weren't born illegitimately like you. We've heard the rumors about you, Jesus, but we're children of God. And it is so easy to be wrong about our spiritual state when we have a godly heritage. The blessing of that heritage can become a curse. Many of us believe we receive Christ as children, but we're only going on what our parents have told us. We don't remember. It was too long ago. We were too young. And as parents, we can be guilty of desiring spiritual life for our children so much that we imagine they have virtues they've never had. However, Jesus follows up here uh, what he's saying by telling them it's clear they're not children of God despite their claims because if they did belong to God, then they couldn't help but love him since he's the son of God. He's challenging them. Verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. He's saying, I came from God the Father. He sent me. I am one with God. I am the expression of God. If you say you love me, you love God, then you have to love me. The highest test of our faith is whether we love Jesus. Because if you really belong to God, then you can't help but love the Son whom he sent to save us from our sins. And the only conclusion that Jesus apparently uh, draws here is these people, because they don't love him, it must be because they don't really belong to the Father. And even more than that, they don't even know the Father. As the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And then in Second John chapter, well there's only one chapter, so it's chapter 1. In um, verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. It's obviously a real important point for John. It's not just in his gospel, it's also in his letters. And Jesus is letting us know that if we truly belong to God, then it will be obvious to those around us because of our love for Christ. So the first test of belonging is love. Second one's a little different because you must belong before you hear. You must belong before you hear. If you were in our adult Sunday school class this morning, you learned that regeneration precedes faith, that you belong before you hear and, and believe. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And Jumping down to verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Lord opens, he asks a rhetorical question. Why do you not understand what I say? The obvious answer, as he immediately points out, is because you cannot bear to hear my word. As we noted earlier, their inability to hear and to understand him prove that they're not God's children. Because another evidence of belonging to God is our ability to hear what Christ is teaching. That's what he tells us. Verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the problem wasn't that the Jews couldn't physically hear him. They surely could. They could analyze his sentences, maybe even diagram them if they had time. But they couldn't hear him on the inside, in their souls. It's a failure to comprehend and understand and apply his words. And that's serious. We have to ask ourselves, does the Word of God speak to us in such a way that it penetrates? and has an effect, an actual effect on our lives. Once again, to hear what God says means we have to spend some time with God and with His Word. We can't hear His Word if we're not abiding uh, in His Word. It's part of the criteria the Apostle John uses to judge who's a true disciple. Um, He says in 1 John 4, part of our responsive reading this morning, we are from God, whoever knows uh, God listens to us. Whoever ever not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And then there's the matter of obedience here. Look at verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. If we're children of Satan, we absolutely will not want to do God's will. Now, this isn't to suggest that all Satan's children uh, consciously desire to serve him. I think very few ever actually come to that. By and large, they serve themselves. Nor does it mean they fall to the same level of evil that he did. Um, But what it does mean is they desire a will other than God's. And ultimately, if you're not serving God, you're serving somebody, I I think as the the poet Dylan uh, put it, you've got to serve somebody. And Christ says, their father is a murderer, and murder flows out of deceit. Satan is above all things a liar. And the Lord is saying those who follow the devil are characterized by deceit but particularly deceit about themselves. They deceive themselves about their own hearts. They deceive themselves about life. They deceive themselves about Christ. They deceive themselves about God. They deceive themselves about the way of salvation. But the ultimate deception is to imagine that you're a child of God when you're not. First test of belonging is love. Second test is to be able to hear his word and know that it's God's word. Finally, the third test is really critical because you must belong before you believe. You must belong before you believe, starting in verse 45, because Jesus is continuing the challenge. See, he hasn't hit him hard enough already. He's coming after him here. Verse 45, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? And as he finishes, he's challenging his opponents with two more rhetorical questions. The first, which one of you convicts me of sin, is a bold affirmation of what theologians refer to as Christ's impeccability. That is, his utter holiness and separation from sin. If you talk about someone and say he has an impeccable character, you mean that he's a, a godly, righteous person. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin. We read in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." And Peter tells this, First Peter 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. What a comparison to Satan. That's all you find in his mouth is deceit and lies. And Peter says, there's no deceit found in his mouth of Jesus. Only a perfectly holy one in intimate communion with the Father could dare issue such a challenge, do you convict me of sin? Those enemies wrongly believed him to be guilty of sin, they couldn't prove him guilty of anything. Do you ever think about what that means? Jesus didn't have to pray for forgiveness. He taught us to confess our sins, but not by personal example. He didn't have any sins to confess. Think about how different that makes it. Then he comes after him with a second rhetorical question. He presses home the point, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? If he wasn't guilty of sin, he must have been speaking the truth. What grounds then do they have for rejecting him? And he's questioning them. He's saying, you must not believe me because you can't really hear what I'm teaching. And you can't hear what I'm teaching because you don't really belong to God and you don't belong to God because you don't love me. So for us then, it's clear what we must be about belonging to god being a member of his family means that we must believe christ out of his wisdom and love god chose us to be a member of his family now we belong to him and because we belong we're able to hear his word and believe in christ and therefore we can hold on to or remain and or continue with or abide in christ's teaching and thus we're able to know the truth and the truth sets us free but there is a danger here in this passage that's easy to miss, and that's to think that we're spiritual people because we come from a spiritual family. Certainly what the Jews thought, we children of Abraham. But it's very easy for us to think that too. It's easy for us to think that we're spiritual because we come from a spiritual family, and If that's the case, then we should realize what danger this poses, not just for us, but for our children. And why folks like the Rational Response Squad uh, squad with their blasphemy challenge pose such a threat to them. Don't ever fall in the trap of thinking those kinds of challenges and those kinds of threats won't affect you or won't affect the ones you love. Let me give you an example about a godly heritage. At the end of the summer of 1874, 133 years ago, I think, an unusual gathering took place back in those days. It was uh, remarkably fine weather for uh, September when 500 descendants of Jonathan Edwards descended into Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which at that time was considered a resort town. They had a huge family reunion all the descendants of Jonathan Edwards. They lunched under a great tent provided by Yale University. I wondered if Yale would do that again today. Um, And they admired all the memorabilia from the Edwards family, such as Sarah Edwards' wedding dress and the silver bowl from which Jonathan ate his nightly porridge. Jonathan Edwards, for those that don't know, is probably... I may be going out on a limb, I don't think so. The greatest theologian America has ever produced. And they went and visited his house because he lived in Stockbridge. And uh, it was essentially uh, unchanged. And that gathering teamed with professors and business executives and government officials and ministers and, according to one account, women of unusual beauty and force of personality. Not entirely sure what that means, but it seems to fit. And the mood of the reunion was expressed by the initiator of the whole gathering. He said, let God be praised for such a man. His remarks were followed by many other very laudatory speeches. excited the glee of Jonathan Edwards' descendants. And all in all, it was as proud a celebration of ancestry as has ever been held in America. A study by the New York Uh, genealogical and historical society says, probably no two people married since the beginning of the 18th century have been originators of a line of descent of so many distinguished persons as were Jonathan Edwards and Sarah Pierpont. 26 years later, in 1900, a man by the name of A.E. Winship did a study of all of Jonathan Edwards' descendants. The results have become Famous, he concluded, from that single union of Jonathan Edwards and Sarah Pierpont came 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers, and a dean of an outstanding law school, 30 judges, 66 physicians, and a dean of a medical school, 80 holders of public office, among them three United States senators, mayors of three large cities, governors of three states, a vice president of the United States and a controller of the U.S. Treasury. And he concluded there is scarcely any great American industry that has not had one of this family among its chief promoters. The family has cost the country nothing, and pauperism and crime and hospital or asylum service, on the contrary, it represents the highest usefulness. It's a very famous study on what happens down through the generations from one set of very godly parents. The obvious conclusion is to have an industrious, godly ancestry is to one's advantage. But there's another statistic about the family that rarely gets mentioned. In 1756, Esther, daughter of Jonathan Edwards, gave birth to a boy. This is how she describes her son shortly after he was born. Very sly and mischievous. Has more sprightliness than Sally, her daughter. Handsomer But not so good-tempered. Very resolute requires a good governor to bring him to terms. Now, my first thought was that could be written about many children. And I'm sure most mothers of most sons have said something similar. But these were written about Aaron Burr, one of the most notorious men in early American history. Aaron Burr is the man who took the life of Alexander Hamilton and then plotted to crown himself Emperor of Mexico. And Aaron Burr was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. Those splendid genetic uh, qualities and heritage in the line of Jonathan Edwards seem to somehow have been demonically reversed in Aaron Burr. And so we see that while a godly heritage is of incredible value, it does not guarantee spiritual health. The Edwards-Burr connection is a compelling story. Many folks here, not all, but many, had godly parents. And for some, that godly heritage goes back generation after generation. Some of us, no doubt, have ancestors who are involved in shaping the world's religious thought and tradition and defending the faith, and we owe them a great debt. But we must remember our heritage can be either a curse or a blessing. And that's why this is such a Very important passage of Scripture. It deals with people who, although they have an outstanding heritage, have come to false conclusions that are detrimental to their spiritual health. What did Jesus do when faced with people who make false conclusions about themselves? He makes a number of penetrating observations that should have helped them to understand the true state of affairs and should help us today. If you look at this passage and what Jesus says, the main observation is that there is this strange inconsistency in their lives. It's an inconsistency between what they profess to be and what they actually were. They're professing to be religious people. Abraham is a man approved by God. He walked with God. He was praised by God. And they claim that was true of them. But as Jesus points out, they sought to kill him, that his word had no place in their lives, neither of which was true about Abraham. So let us apply this observation of Christ to our own day. Here's a man or a woman, perhaps you, thinks that he or she is a Christian, but to whom Christianity makes very little difference in your way of life. I wouldn't say it may be more true than we realize that if Christ were actually here on earth physically that you would try to kill him, but perhaps you try to kill him by keeping him out of your life. You would say you're a Christian, but you have no room in your life for the one who founded Christianity. You believe he lived and died and rose again, it just makes no difference to you. Nothing about your life is changed because of Christ. It may also be true that his word doesn't abide in you. I don't mean that you've never heard it or been able to learn some of Christ's teachings, although if you think the words God helps those who help themselves are in the Bible, then you know less than you think. But I do mean to say that God's word is not part of you enough to affect your decisions. Something does something mean to you, you, and you do something mean right back. It is mine uh, to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord, means nothing to you. When you come home, you insult your wife, snap at the kids, and Christ's commandment to love one another doesn't enter into your thinking, let alone your home. What about it? Does stuff like that trouble you? Isn't it a strange inconsistency? Like the Pharisees, we used to be children of Satan, but now we've been made children of God. 1 Corinthians 6, I love this verse 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And people say, Amen. Keep those bad people out. But the next verse says, And such were some of you. But you were washed you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And the obvious conclusion is, if a person is to be taken out of the family of Satan and into the family of God, he must experience what he would have to experience if this was true physically. And what would have to happen for you to get out of one family and get in another? And the answer is you would have to die to the one and be born again into the other. And obviously, this can't be done physically. But the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it can be done spiritually. It is possible to be born again through the work of God's Holy Spirit and on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. And Before we can make this point, before we can say that a man can be born again, we have to make the equally important point that a man must be born again. And that's true because no mere physical birth can save him. It's the same point. It's made several times in the Bible. It was made by John the Baptist. He'd been out preaching in the wilderness. Many people came to him for baptism. Some of them hadn't repented. And he told them, Matthew 3, And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. What were the Jews saying to Jesus? We had Abraham. John says, do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And John's telling these people that it's only an active God by which they would become reborn and begin to bring forth good fruit that would save them. It all starts with God's uh, faith and God's promises to save you and faith in God's ability to save you. And the foundation of our faith comes from abiding in God's word. The danger, however, as we have seen, is to think you're a spiritual person because you have a spiritual heritage. Kids, teens, listen to me here. You need to think about this. You've seen mom's faith, you've seen dad's faith, you may have been able to see the faith of your grandparents. If you've been in this church for a while, you've seen the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've heard the story of redemption from the scriptures. You've seen the faith of Moses and of David, the faith of the apostles, and you've seen uh, that all faith is fulfilled and points to is completed with and constant with the Lord Jesus Christ. But growing up in a faith community is no guarantee of having a faith commitment. One of the greatest dangers for the children of the church, any church, our church, is thinking they have faith in their life when actually their life and thinking is riddled with unbelief. Jesus says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. Just as he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You have to hear, again, teens, kids, college students, young adults, you have to hear the words of God yourself. You have to abide in his word yourself. You have to believe in him yourself. Think about that. Because the rational response squad is waiting for your answer. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close.